This is the Better Reading Podcast platform with stories behind the story, Jane's Be Better Podcast, my book chat with Caroline Overington and more. Looking for a particular podcast? Remember, you can always skip to it. Welcome to the Better Reading Podcast, stories behind the story, brought to you by Belinda Audio. Listen to Belinda Audiobooks, anywhere, everywhere. Hi, this is Cheryl Arkell for the Better Reading Podcast, stories behind the story. We talk to authors about how they came to tell us their story. Nick Bryant, welcome to Better Reading. Cheryl, it's great to be here. So you're in New York or, well, you're in the United States and I'm in Sydney and it's our new world, isn't it? Sometimes when I'm feeling flat about um, being housebound, I have to remind myself of the benefits of, of a pandemic and one is Zoom and being able to talk to people remotely because in the past we would just do podcasts in our studio in the office one-on-one. It's a new world, isn't it? I mean, I, I do work now with... Um a producer who's in New Mexico, I'm in New York, my cameraman yeah. will often be in Washington. Yeah. And yet, you know, you can still do some strong work. So it's, That's a, right. it's yeah, yeah. a fascinating time to be, um, to be yeah, working. Yeah. You know, uh, unfortunately, me and my wife actually had COVID. Um, so we've experienced the sort of the nasty end of it. We both recovered, thankfully. She was heavily pregnant at the time, which added an extra layer of worry and concern. But yeah, it's a nasty thing. But yeah, you're right. Some some good things have come from it. Well, I want to talk about that. So let me introduce you first. So before becoming the BBC's New York and United Nations correspondent, Nick was based in Washington, South Asia and Sydney. He's a regular contributor to several Australian magazines and newspapers, including The Australian, The Spectator and The Monthly. He has reported on some of the world's most prevalent issues and topics with a keen political understanding. A history graduate from Cambridge with a PhD in American politics from Oxford. He is the author of The Bystander, John F. Kennedy and the Struggle for Black Equality and Confessions from Correspondent Land. His newest book, When America Stopped Being Great, which came out earlier this month, is a comprehensive analysis of the current American political landscape. It is so hugely topical, but I guess you've had time to ponder. And I want to know what was the trigger to writing the book? Was it Trump? I realized that I'd had this kind of forest-like um, good fortune to sort of pop up in America at some extraordinary times in the country's history. Mm. I first came to America as a young teenager, 16 mm. years old. It was 1984. It was the Los Angeles Olympics. It was this extraordinary summertime of American resurgence. After Vietnam, Watergate, and the Iranian hostage crisis, America got its mojo back. You remember that gold rush. They won virtually every gold medal, it seemed. And afterwards, Ronald Reagan went on to win re-election in a landslide with this ringing slogan, it's morning again in America. Well, now it's mass morning in America. And I realized I'd, I'd had this extraordinary American journey. I'd seen Reagan. Um, I'd been a student in America during the presidency of George Herbert Walker Bush. That enabled me to see the rise of Bill Clinton. I got to meet Bill Clinton as a young man, as a young BBC correspondent. They sent me to Washington to cover what we then called the Monica Lewinsky scandal, what we really should have called the Bill Clinton scandal. I was supposed to be there a few months. They said, stay there until Clinton's out of trouble. I was still there five years later. And uh, that enabled me to see 
that crazy election in 2000. I was there for 9-11. I was there for the, the run-up to the war in Iraq. Um, then I went to cover the sharp end of the war on terror in Afghanistan and Pakistan, the hunt for Osama bin Laden. While I was there, I met this extraordinary Australian woman. I went to live in Australia. Uh, we've happily became, got married. But I'd popped back to America, so I was there for the election of Barack Obama. I was there for the financial crisis in 2008. And then in 2013, the BBC ran me up and said, how do you want to be, uh, how do you feel about being our New York correspondent? I leapt to the chance. It was the end of the Obama years. But what I never thought would happen, obviously, was the rise of Donald Trump. Mm. Now, firstly, I, I want to talk about Trump, um, obviously, and I want to talk about all sorts of aspects in, in your book. But talk to me about you and your wife getting COVID. How did that happen? Were you aware that you were in contact with it? And how did you deal with it? I'd imagine really it would felt- be a very big shock. Yeah, we really felt like the headlines were closing in on us, living as yeah. we did in New York. You yeah. know, we First of all, it came to America, of course. Then it came to the outer suburbs of New York City. Then it came to New York City itself. You heard there was somebody in an apartment building next door who had it. Then there was somebody on the floor of my office building that just overlooks the 9-11 memorial that had it. Suddenly it was in our building. And of course, as a journalist, I was covering the story and probably, you know, getting exposed to it quite frequently. So I came down with it one Friday night. I, I just thought I was tired. I had this really sort of big run at work covering the COVID crisis in New York City. I just put it off to, to fatigue, really. But then when I woke up the next morning, I realized it was something much worse than that. And my wife got it too. And that was particularly worrying because she was in the late stage of pregnancy. And so we both had it. She was on the verge of hospitalization. Thank God that she didn't have to go to hospital. I mean, we were living in a time when paramedics were literally saying to people, do not get in my ambulance, do not go to hospital. You know, the viral load in hospital can be overwhelming and you might be safer to to stay at home and just take your chances. Anyway, my my wife rallied, I did too. And uh, fortunately, you know, the those very dark clouds parted and we got through it, but it was really nasty. I mean, there's nothing more frightening than seeing your wife you know, struggle to get to the end of a sentence because she can't, you know, breathe to, to get the words out. And, and obviously that was particularly worrying in, in the final stage of pregnancy. Mm. I'll jump right to this. I read an article and listened to a podcast in the New York Times recently, and you might have seen it, where they talk about the um, coronavirus crisis in New York. And, you know, I've got to say, I, I listen to podcasts when I walk my dog. And halfway through that podcast, I stopped and I sat on a park bench and I cried it was talking about the $52 million health facility, that big medical centre that Cuomo set up, and how abused that was in a sense that it wasn't used because the health insurance companies didn't direct people there. The gist that I got from this article was that the health insurance companies, these huge giants, are profiteering out of COVID and in a time of pandemic aren't putting people first. And I thought, what has gone wrong in a country where the health system is that broken? Yeah, I mean, it really did hold up a a fractured mirror to a broken country, um, Mm. the COVID crisis. I ended the book with the COVID crisis. You did. Um, And in many ways, the things that were exposed during COVID were the the very things that also contributed to the victory of Donald Trump. Mm. 
you know, the racial disparities that we saw. I mean, the death rate amongst people of colour was obviously so much higher. Well, it talked about it talked about this article talked about the difference between community hospitals and private hospitals, and the community hospitals are so underfunded that one of the the, ther- the therapies is just to flip a patient around. It increases the chance of survival to, you know, umpteen percent. I don't know what it was. And in community hospitals, they didn't have the staff to do that. So those that were taken to private hospitals or had the means to go to a private hospital had a greater chance of survival from that very simple act. And you live in Australia, and I'm critical of a lot of things here, but healthcare and education should be the bedrock of every community, shouldn't they? Mm-hmm. Yeah, this was a a huge problem. And of course, it was exacerbated by the economic shock and the fact that so many people lost their jobs because losing your job in America means Mm. losing your health insurance as well. Mm. So far more people became reliant on those community hospitals that, you know, pre-COVID, when they had jobs, they could actually go to the private hospital. But it held up a mirror to so many problems in America, whether they were racial, whether they're about income disparities, whether they're about the rundown of government, whether they're about the mistrust of government, whether it was about the spread of misinformation on the internet, whether it was about the emergence of this new economy in which the 1% were always the beneficiaries and a lot of people struggled. And in New York, the 1% generally left town. As New York became the epicenter of the coronavirus, a lot of New Yorkers went to the Hamptons and they went to Long Island and they decided to ride out the crisis outside of New York. Now, that option obviously wasn't available for the majority of New Yorkers. And like I say, so many of the things that we saw in COVID were similar to the the things that contributed uh, to the rise of Donald Trump. So let's start talking about Trump. I'm I'm a lefty through and through and a huge fan of the Labor Party here, of course, and the Democrats over there. And when Obama um, won the first election... I actually had a party. I celebrated. I was so excited for the country. And it is, I think we spoke um, earlier before we started recording that I do have a deep connection with that country. And I've got very, very dear friends that live there. But the deterioration and sadness since Trump has come in. I mean, I, I remember crying when he won, but it has been even worse than I think I imagined. Has it been worse? Than, and, and where were you on that night that, that Hillary lost and Trump won? And what were you thinking? Look, I was at the Hillary victory party that was supposed to unfold. She'd rented this convention centre. You were talking about that hospital that they've converted. Yes. Well, it was the convention centre where Hillary Clinton was supposed to have this victory party. And they constructed this extraordinary stage in the shape of the United States. They even had Hawaii off to one point and Alaska off at another. And it was underneath this giant glass ceiling. ceiling. It was in this huge atrium. And, of course, she was supposed to figuratively shatter this glass ceiling. But then, of course, the early results started coming through. Florida wasn't going well for Hillary Clinton. Some of those Rust Belt states weren't going very well for Clinton. You could tell that something wasn't quite right. And, obviously, over the course of the evening, it became increasingly apparent that, you know, Donald Trump was going to produce this extraordinary shock. And it was really interesting to be in the press room that night. I mean, normally there's kind of a feverish excitement in a press room on a presidential night, especially when there's an unexpected result. But it was almost as if the atmosphere that night was funereal. And it was partly because I think, you know, we were all there because we thought Hillary was going to win. And there was this dawning realisation amongst some of the top journalists in the world that all of us had got it wrong. And our colleagues who went over to the, the Trump victory 
the, or the Trump party expecting to experience a wake, obviously found themselves in the middle of this extraordinary celebration. And I remember leaving the Jacob Javid Center that night. I was behind an African-American guy. He must have been in his early 20s. And as we walked into the night of Manhattan, he just said, America has chosen hate. Mm. And I'll always remember those words. I mean, obviously... Do you know, it is so true. For the half that didn't vote for Hillary, often it was often it was a sort of a, a nightmare was starting to unfold. Um, I spoke to uh, Malcolm Turnbull recently on this podcast, an ex-prime minister in this country and conservative prime minister belonging to the Liberal Party here. And I talked about why is it that conservatism is often full of hatred and greed? And he disagreed with me. He said, no, no, that 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 we as people it is just the nature of people. But I don't see great evidence of that. I think when you look at Trump supporters and when you look at conservative voters, it is really about the individual every single time. It's about me, isn't it? It's not about the greater good or the greater community. I think what Trump managed to do very successfully in that campaign is articulate so many grievances that were felt by people who felt they'd missed out on globalisation. They felt they'd been left behind by the new economy. I spent so much time that year in the Rust Belt, this post-industrial landscape where the empty factories became echo chambers for the slogan, Make America Great Again. And what Trump also managed to do was to turn Hillary Clinton into a hate figure. Mm. And and still continues to do it. Yeah. I mean, Lock Her Up became this ringing chant, the chant that always would get the the most boisterous sort of shouts at his, his stadium rallies. And what was interesting, of course, was it was not just men who hated Hillary. Mm-hmm. A lot of women did too. And, I mean, the book talks about that. What were the origins of that? I mean, I actually argue that you can make the case that Hillary Clinton lost the 2016 presidential election and the 1992 presidential election when she did that interview with Bill Clinton. She said, I'm not just standing by my man like some Tammy Wynette. Now, that really annoyed a lot of working-class white women. And, of course, a majority of white women actually ended up voting for Donald Trump. Even more extraordinary, I think, was the statistic that she only managed to get 51% of college-educated white women. You know, after the emergency access Hollywood tape where Trump boasted about sexually molesting women, you'd have thought that would be sort of 60 or 70%. She only got 51%. So Donald Trump really did manage to harness a lot of anger, a lot of rage, and towards Hillary Clinton, a lot of hate. Mm. I think that there's irony there that he's still using the term lock her up, where it's likely that he's going to be locked up at some point. I mean, you know, he and that family are criminals, you know, and I guess it's projecting in a way, isn't it? Anyway, that's just me. Just I want to talk about legacy. And when I was over in the US, when George Bush, when George W. Bush was... Um, the inauguration. And I remember thinking what a sad day it was for the United States then and how I thought terrible a president he is. And now you, you know, you look back at history and you're thinking, well, maybe he wasn't so bad. The country has reached this point where I guess the interest here in Australia, I mean, there's two two body, two uh, thoughts here is look at America and, you know, they're doing a terrible job and people are feeling, I guess, a little bit... Um, the fact that, you know, we're winning over them, if you like. But then there's people like me who look at it and and experience a great sense of sadness, but also the global ramifications of what is happening is really, for me, the most frightening. 
the global ramifications of the Trump presidency. Yeah, and, you know, you're writing a book on, you know, when America stopped being great. Well, what is the future when America is not great? The global ramifications are really very profound, I think. America's great post-war success has been built on a strong system of alliances around the world. In Europe, with countries like the UK, Germany, France. In Asia, with countries like Japan and Australia. Now, Donald Trump just has not had much respect for those relationships and not a huge amount of respect for the history that produced them. So it's no surprise in the first telephone conversation with Malcolm Turnbull, they end up squabbling about the refugee deal that obviously took the refugees from Manus Island and Nauru and resettled them in America. You know, Britain, the special relationship has just become a servile relationship. You know, Donald Trump treated Theresa May the former British Prime Minister, absolutely appallingly. Obviously, the Trump doctrine has al- almost become an anti-Obama doctrine. So he has sought to unravel and destroy and undermine so many of the legacy items of Obama's foreign policy, You know, whether it's the Paris Climate Change Accord or whether it's the Iranian nuclear deal or whether it's the Trans-Pacific Partnership, this trade deal that was struck with Australia and other countries in an attempt to try and contain China. That was his big China play. And so at the same time that he has been undercutting the traditional alliances with allies, we've seen the emergence not of an axis of authoritarians as such, but but something close. He seems to go weak at the knees when he meets leaders like Vladimir Putin, the Saudis, um, the Turkish president, Erdogan. There is something about these authoritarian leaders that he seems to respect in a way that he doesn't respect. You know what my theory is? What is it? Money. He likes people of great wealth. He's only there to acquire personal wealth. You look at Putin, I mean, it's just all based on greed. And a lot of the Saudi is the same. I mean, he's attracted to money. I think there is definitely a transactional aspect of his foreign policy. It isn't led by the kind of traditional ideals that have tended to you know, focus America on the kind of human rights agenda. And, you know, he sees um, foreign policy very much as promoting American business and, you know, getting a better trade deal with China and things like that. And what has ended up happening, of course, is that, you know, an America that used to be awe-inspiring to many people and a country that many people wanted to emulate and wanted to live in, you know, that has definitely changed. I mean, America is not exerting the traditional leadership at the global level that it normally does. We've seen that during COVID. And right now, it seems that the position of the leader of the free world does seem to be vacant. And who do you think is going to rise to that? And what, what, what do you mean by that? Well, in terms of leadership. I mean, I think one of the problems of COVID globally is there was no world leadership. I mean, you've got Boris Johnson, who doesn't even know what's going on. You've got Trump. And you imagine that if this pandemic had hit in another world, like say where you had Obama and where you had Theresa May, or you had, you know, people that were perhaps more strategic and a little bit more intelligence and, you know, were there for the right reasons, could this pandemic have gone a different way? Yeah, I think this is, again, put a mirror up to the geopolitics at the moment and which nations are functioning at a high level yeah. and, which, and, you know, America clearly is not functioning at a high level when America stopped being great and it yeah. explains a 50-year decline. Countries like Australia have done very well. Countries like New Zealand have, have done very well. It's very telling, I think, that countries that are led by women tend to be doing very well, mm-hmm. you know, New Zealand, Germany. 
some of the Scandinavian countries are, are, are doing very well, and they're, they're increasingly becoming a sort of model for all sorts of success stories, whether it's educational, whether it's a kind of more equitable economy, those kind of things. Yeah, you've really shown, and of course, in America, the way that the virus actually unfolded exposed the chronic divisions within this country. I mean, it hit the blue democratic states first, the big metropolitan cities like Los Angeles and New York. And, you know, red America, the Republican America was going, why is the country in shutdown? You know, we're, we're not being hit by this virus. And then, of course, the red states started being hit as well. So even the way that the virus sort of took hold exposed the polarized nature of America. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. The way masks became a political statement. I mean, it's crazy. Everything in America right now becomes politicized. You know, again, the book talks about how that happened. And something as simple as wearing a mask became this political act. I mean, a lot of Republicans regarded mask wearing as an act of liberalism, an act of political correctness. And it's been harder to sell the idea that, you know, a mask is just a really simple way to break the chain and to stop the spread. I mean, I think in, in Sydney at the moment, and we've had our challenges, Victoria's struggling a little bit, but that's under control now. But, you know, we're recording three or four cases a day, and some days we're recording one case a day, and I still go out there and everyone's wearing a mask. I don't know. I just wonder whether we're a more compliant race. I'm not quite sure. Why? Why is that? Well, I think that you've got a functioning government. You've got a very good functioning civil service. I mean, what America has seen over the past 50 years is a kind of rundown of government. And when you have these crises where the country does need to rely on the federal government and they do need to rely on Washington, Washington tends to fail them. I mean, we saw that in Katrina, you know, the hurricane that ripped through New Orleans and then the flooding that followed it. You know, that was a bit of a dress rehearsal for COVID, really, in the way that government in America just didn't respond to these crises in the way that you would expect it to. You know, I spoke to a, a sort of leading figure in the COVID situation in Australia before this all unfolded. We were kind of trying to think where we should have our baby. And he said, well, you know, America always gets its SHIT together. And um, that's no longer the case. And I think the COVID has really shown that, the, the fragility of the American system, the broken politics, which has really been an obstacle to actually dealing with this and how deeply divided the country has become. I mean, we were talking about the absence of, of global leadership, and that has sort of promoted the idea that we live in a post-American world. You know, my worry right now 
is that we live in a post-America America. It's just unrecognisable. I want to talk about his enablers like William Barr and Mitch McConnell. And I want to talk about, it seems to me that his circle and, and his style of, of governance is almost cultish. I mean, it's certainly heading towards autocracy. But at this stage, that, you know, the fact-checking, the lies, and I wonder if those people around him, do they worry? Do you worry as history is going to see you. I mean, I think William Barr has to be one of the, the most corrupt aides that, that America has seen. I think what we've seen, um, and we've seen this over the last couple of nights of the Republican convention, is how the, the grand old party, yeah. GOP, GOP, the Republican Party, has really become part of the Trump political machine. They haven't decided this convention, for instance, to come up with a with a party platform. Now, in the past, that's been a sort of something that they've really argued over, you know, what should be their stance on abortion, what should be their stance on this and that and trade and all that kind of stuff. They haven't decided to do that this year because they basically endorse the policies of Donald Trump. So the intellectual life of the Republican Party, which has traditionally been very vibrant, I mean, some of the great conservative thinkers have contributed to the Republican Party. You just don't see that anymore. It's it's a kind of rubber stamping uh, of Trump. And there is this way that norms are just being busted and ignored. You know, generally speaking, the attorney general who leads up the Justice Department is totally apolitical, and there's a bit of a firewall between the White House and the Justice Department. Now, that firewall is just not as strong as it used to be. We're going to see a case later on. Um, Mike Pompeo, the Secretary of State, he's going to address the Republican Convention from Jerusalem. Now, the tradition is a Secretary of State of the United States does not take part in a political convention, even if they're a close ally, as they inevitably are of the president. So, you know, Condoleezza Rice, she never appeared at the Republican convention while she was Secretary of State. It was just unthinkable. John Kerry, Obama's Secretary of State, he was a presidential candidate himself. He didn't appear at the Democratic convention because it was just seen as, you know, politics stops at the water's edge. We need a diplomat that can be respected, you know, and, and not embroiled in, in politics. So you're seeing a lot of these conventions, these customs, these behavioural norms just being completely shattered during the Trump year. So you don't want to make a comment on Barr and Mitch McConnell? <laughs> um, As enablers? I mean, truly, like, think about history. I mean, how will we view this period when we started to accept lies as truth? I think it's going to be... Uh, I, I don't think history will be kind to William Barr as the Attorney General, I do think that they will see that he politicised the Justice Department. The way that he dealt with the Mueller report, for instance, he initially delivered a precy of the Mueller report, which didn't bear, well, it did bear some resemblance to the Mueller report, but he obviously stopped short of telling the whole story. I mean, Robert Mueller, who was the special counsel who was looking into Russian meddling, you know, made the decision based on sort of tradition and custom that he wasn't going to recommend a prosecution against the White House. And of course, Barr um, spun that as he'd absolved the president of any blame. You know, Mitch McConnell is definitely going to be regarded as one of the kind of key figures in the polarization of America. I mean, there are, there are figures on the Democratic side as well. I talk about them in the book. Bill Clinton was a key figure mm. in the polarization of America. Some of the people under him who led his economic policy, were key figures in that. But on the Republican side, you look at people like Mitch McConnell and Newt Gingrich, people on Capitol Hill, who probably exerted more influence over the politics than almost any other non-president. You know, Mitch McConnell really tried to block everything 
that Barack Obama did, for instance, even stopping him from putting somebody on the Supreme Court about nine months before the presidential election. And those kind of blocking tactics have, have contributed very significantly to the way that Washington politics became broken. And when Washington politics became broken, people were more amenable to the idea that it needed an outsider to fix them. And who was that outsider? Donald J. Trump. Okay, let's talk about some good news. Um, (laughs) The future. Now, Joe Biden wouldn't have been my pick, but I can see how, you know, in the polarisation of the the United States, why people have favoured him, because there does seem to be, just even in his physical presence, a sense of calmness, doesn't there? I feel that even by looking at him, you know, it it is a, a more subdued kind of person that will hopefully... I think calm things down. And then Kamala Harris on the ticket is is something that I was championing for and, uh, you know, I think it's great news. So I think that the Democrats have their best foot forward, which I thought might take a while to do because, you know, they've been in terrible disarray trying to be heard over Trump. So I don't know well, how, how far out of the election are we, 80 days or 79 days or whatever it is. What do you think is going to happen? I'm very mindful of the false prophecies of four years ago and so many people predicted what was going to happen and it didn't unfold that way. And I'm mindful too of something a a well-connected Democrat told me a couple of weeks ago, just because it looks like Donald Trump is losing, it doesn't mean that Joe Biden is winning. He did have a very good convention. I saw Joe Biden uh, during the campaign early on in Iowa and New Hampshire. We couldn't believe it. He was such a poor candidate. I've never seen such a bad front runner. Even Jeb Bush, mm. uh, he was worse than Jeb Bush. You know, he offers this presidency in the background, the kind of soft jazz mm. against the heavy metal of the Trump years. But the problem in Iowa and New Hampshire was he was struggling to hold a tune. Mm. And I think after those defeats there, and I think he came fourth in Iowa and fifth in New Hampshire, you thought it was time for him to don his aviator shades and ride off into the sunset. Well, he went south. That meant he got the support of African-Americans and after a big victory in South Carolina, obviously set him up for for winning the nomination. He had a good convention. The Kamala Harris rollout went pretty well. The Obamas helped, obviously, Michelle and Barack Obama with with two speeches that uh, were well received. And he's a very hard character to demonize. I think that's the problem for Donald Trump. You know, it's the geniality of Joe Biden. It's almost as if his smile is his philosophy. Hillary Clinton was very easy to turn into a hate figure because of the baggage I talk in the book, in the, in the book of 30 years, sort of baggage that she brought to it. Joe Biden is deemed to be a nice and decent guy, and he's much harder to demonize. But, you know, my goodness me, the Republicans are really trying to do that this week, saying he's a sort of cipher for the radical left, that he's a prisoner to the radical mm-hmm. left, those kind of things. And those are messages which will have resonance in large swathes of this country. They're terrible lies. So uh, (laughs) that was an evasive answer. (laughs) I'm asking you, what do you think? What do you think is going to happen? Look, I'm I'm just really kind of, I think this election is hard to read. You know, ordinarily, a strong economy and an incumbent president generally wins. So at the beginning of this year, I think Donald Trump was in a really strong position. I agree. And many people who voted for him last time, holding their noses, didn't like the way he behaves, don't like the Twitter tirades, don't like all that stuff, were still prepared to vote for him again because of the strong economy. Now, the question is, how has the kind of economic shock impacted voters like that? Are they prepared to vote for him again? Are those suburban voters willing to vote for Trump in the, in the same way that they did four years ago? That's a big question mark. And I don't know the answer. 
Another question is, are young people going to turn out in big enough numbers for Joe Biden, a 77-year-old who was a moderate Democrat at a time when the Democratic Party is lurched to the left and many like, um, you know, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, AOC and Bernie Sanders? You know, are those people going to come out and vote? Again, that's a, that's a difficult one to tell. And the other thing that makes it hard to predict is the Electoral College. I've got little doubt that Joe Biden will win the national vote. Hillary Clinton won by three million. I think that Joe Biden will amass more supporters. You know, the big states like New York and California, they really boost your vote. But you've got the Electoral College. And as you know, it's, it's a state-by-state system. We've had five elections this century. In only one of them, the Republicans have got more votes than the Democrats, and yet they've won three of those elections. And so you could have that scenario playing out this time as well. So again, I'm going to be evasive and say, I, I don't know, but I, I really don't. No. I mean, that's, okay. I hear you. I'm not being okay. evasive, I'm actually being truthful. I, I find it really hard to predict the outcome of, of this election. I'm predicting a landslide loss. For Trump? Mm. You may be right, but it's yeah. hard to get landslides in American politics these yeah, days. Yeah, it is, it is. Because the country is so divided. And what else has happened? I talk about this in the book, is so many people who think the same way live in the same places now. Mm-hmm. So Reagan won with 49 out of 50 states, right, which was, he almost got the 50 sweep. But since then, as the country's become more polarised, then red states have got redder and blue states have got bluer. It's harder, you know, states generally vote the same way most of the time. And it, And the election basically comes down to sort of five or six that are toss-up states, like Michigan, like Pennsylvania, like Florida, like Ohio. So generally on the map, you know, you can look now and you'll say, well, you know, the Dakotas, they're going to be Republican. Texas, that's going to be Republican. You know, there are a lot of states that are going to vote for Donald Trump. And the election will be decided, as I say, in those those key swing battleground states. Okay, let's go to the scenario that I think that if he wins, that we will be headed towards autocracy. Look what happened in Portland. Sure, they weren't mercenaries that he sent up there, but they were close to it. And so we know his style of governance. So that's what's going to happen if he wins. I think if he loses, there's going to be some kind of civil unrest because he's not going to be the calming person to say, listen, everybody, let's collect our thoughts now. You know, he's not going to be Barack Obama. So I think it's we are heading towards a frightening time either way. Look, I mean, you can already see Trump setting up a pretext for disputing the result if he loses, which is obviously, you know, the, the, it's rigged. the way he's saying it's rigged, the postal mm. votes are corrupt, mm-hmm. where there's no evidence of postal votes, obviously, are being corrupt. And, you know, again, I talk about this in the book, there's, there's kind of a, a long recent tradition now of the losing side not accepting the result. And regarding presidents as illegitimate, we saw it first with Bill Clinton. He got 43% of the vote. That was sort of historically low. So the Republicans said, we are going to be the people of the majority. They delegitimized his presidency. The Democrats delegitimized George W. Bush's presidency because mm-hmm. they thought the Supreme Court had stolen the election. You know, the Republicans didn't like Barack Obama. I mean, Trump perpetuated the falsehood that he hadn't been born in America again. It was the delegitimization of uh, his victory. And the very night that he was inaugurated, a group of senior Republicans gathered around and said, we're going to thwart this guy at every turn. You know, they just didn't believe, he, they didn't accept that he had a mandate from the American people. So this idea of not accepting the result has, alas, become kind of a permanent feature of the American system right now. But I think, you know, Donald Trump will take it to that next level. And I think it could really be an explosive situation. I mean, I've never really thought about the possibility of a, of a civil strife or a, even a civil war-like situation in the modern day. But 
you know, at the moment, you cannot totally rule that out. You can't. Because he'll send the troops out. I, I mean, I've got this. This is a running joke with my friends is that he's, if he does lose, he's not going to physically leave. So somebody's going to have to go in and get him out. And maybe the army's up for that at the moment because I don't think he's all that popular with them. Look, I think there was a resentment in the Pentagon that the way that the military was used in the Black Lives Matter protests. Mm. Um, you saw the chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff who participated in that photo op when he walked across the Lafayette Square and held up the, the Bible outside the, the, the vandalised church. He issued a statement saying he regretted being alongside Donald Trump wearing combat fatigues. Look, I think it's going to be a real test of the American system, this. I mean, obviously, the founding fathers put checks and balances into the system. I mean, one of the arguments of the book is those checks and balances don't really work anymore because the system has become so politicized. You know, those checks and balances rely on a sort of political goodwill between the two sides and a sense of compromise and national interest that don't exist anymore. And yeah, it's going to be a real stress test of the United States Constitution of the institutes of government to see what happens in, in if, if that scenario plays out, where there is an election that he can in some way dispute. And it's going to be a, a really fluid and, and potentially explosive time mm. um, in America, yeah. Where are you going to be? I don't know where Trump plans to be that night. I suspect it'll be at the White House, or I suspect I'll be in Washington that night. And if Joe Biden looks like he's going to win, then I suspect we'll be in Wilmington, Delaware, which is his hometown. But um, like I say, four years ago, we were pretty confident that we were in the right place to see Hillary Clinton win. And we got it terribly wrong. <laughs> We've got way more at stake here, though. Anyway, I'm holding a party that night, a victory party <laughs> for Joe Biden and Kamala Harris. So I'm hoping that that's the way it plays out, just so that I can be drinking champagne. Uh, Nick Bryant, thank you so much for your time. It's been an absolute pleasure. It's been a lot of fun. If you'd like more information about Better Reading, follow us on Facebook or visit betterreading.com.au. This podcast is proudly sponsored by Belinda Audio. Belinda Audiobooks are available on CD and MP3 from online booksellers and bookshops everywhere, or you can download from Audible, Google Play or the iBookstore. We've also created our own app called BorrowBox that's available from both the App Store and Google Play. All you need to do to get it working is to download the app, join your local public library and you'll gain access to the world's best collection of ebooks and e-audiobooks available for you to loan on your phone or your personal device. Belinda, we're here to enable you to escape, imagine, grow and be inspired through the power of storytelling. Belinda Audiobooks. Anywhere. Everywhere. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. 
Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50% to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. If you enjoyed this podcast, leave us a review and check out the other podcasts on the Better Reading Network.